Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowick. June is Pride Month, and globally, LGBTQ persons and their allies are recognizing the history of the global equality movement. It seems that every year there is a focus by certain religious organizations and faith leaders on their interpretation that homosexuality is an abomination, a sin worthy of condemnation to hell. And as a result, there is a backlash against the community by certain religious organizations. I'm not going to get into specifics, but some of those religious leaders disseminate some horrible messages and in some cases even advocate violence against LGBTQ persons. Today, I am joined by Pastor George Mason. George has been the senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas since August 1989 where the doors of his church are open to everyone, including LGBTQ people. He is the founder and president of Faith Commons, a multi-faith, multi-ethnic, nonprofit organization committed to promoting the common good from a faith perspective. George is also the host of The Good God Project, a weekly audio and video conversation sponsored by Faith Commons. He is a frequent op-ed contributor to the Dallas Morning News on subjects of public interest that intersect religion, such as public education, race relations, and predatory lending. Wilshire Baptist was not always openly welcome to LGBTQ people, and as a result of this position, Wilshire has taken to be inclusive to everyone. It's received some criticism, to say the least, from fellow leaders of the faith community. Pastor Mason and I are going to discuss the importance of recognizing all human beings as equal and the evolution of his church in accepting equality of all people, including those who identify as LGBTQ. Welcome to Breaking Protocol, Pastor Mason. Thank you so much, Bob, and it's a delight to be with you, and it turnabout is fair play because uh, you were on good God with me, and I, I was. Uh, we talked about breaking protocol, and I also sort of feel like that's what we did at our church, too. You know, we, we, we broke protocol uh, and rewrote the rules about all of that, so it's, uh, yeah, it's it, it's fun to talk with well, you. Well, you know, I enjoy having people on my show who... Uh, are not opposed to breaking protocol, which is kind of the point of this whole show. But uh, in this particular scenario, I think you maybe broke a little more than just protocol, so to speak. <laughs> I, you know, before we jump into the deep end of the pool there with that one, I, I'd like to go back and and talk about your personal journey. You have been the senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist for thirty one years, and Prior to that, you have been a man of faith and grew up in a Christian environment under the influence of religious teaching. At what point did you begin to personally struggle with the idea that the religious community didn't quite have it right as it pertains specifically to LGBTQ persons? I think it was during my years in seminary when. I started reading and wrestling with commentaries and books on the subject that I really began to question the received tradition 
of blanket condemnation of same-sex relationships. And I would say that I went back and forth over the next couple of decades, leaning more toward traditional view and other times more toward a more open view of of the matter, just sort of struggling with how to make a case for a true and full inclusion. And my sticking point, I suppose, is that as a Baptist, I'm part of a tradition that tended to want to say, on the one hand, that personal experience with God is something that we should really pay attention to that we should we should celebrate and bob you you and i sort of both have grown up around this notion of a testimony in church you know of your experience sure. with god and 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 people respond to that because we're very high on personal experience and yet on the other hand there's part of this tradition that says don't trust your experience that you simply put your trust in the word of god and the Bible says, and therefore, that's you know what you have to conform to. And so we have this tension that exists in our Christian uh, tradition of faith between experience and scripture. And, and I'm going to get to certainly your reaction to some of those clobber passages. Yeah. But homosexuals have a tendency by certain members of the faith community to be tossed in with all of those other perversions that those particular passages in the Bible speak to, when I, as a man of faith, seek guidance with another person of faith, and in many cases, that would be a pastor, who do you seek guidance with? And specifically, when you were struggling through the inclusion of LGBTQ people, where do you go? Well, I think, you know, I go to colleagues who I trust, people that I know are smart people, caring people, people who have demonstrated courage and uh, stuck their neck out to do the right thing. And so, you know, when you when you look at this matter, you know, there are fellow pastors around the country that I know about that I've been able to draw inspiration and guidance from. So that that was part of my journey. But I want to go back and pick up on something uh, that you said a little while ago, and that is, you know, w- what about this tendency to look at perversions, say, of sexuality, and then sort of use those as an indicator that all gay people are just like that? Well, this is an old process in which when we're trying to claim a moral high ground for our own position, what we do is we tend to actually dehumanize people in order to do it. Instead of being fair about it and saying, people like me have their faults and their sins, but we don't want to be uh, painted with a broad brush or be defined by our worst moments, Instead, that's what we end up doing to people that we're trying to criticize. And we see this, for instance, with what just happened with George Floyd. This happens all the time with black Americans. You know, George Floyd is killed, and it's an egregious, horrible, terrible moment in American history, and certainly mostly for George Floyd. 
But immediately, people begin to bring up his criminal record and essentially try to justify the fact that he was not a noble, upright citizen with a clean report card on his record. And so, therefore, there must be some justification for him because, you know, he was, he was really like this. And, and we do this, you know, black people are like this. Gay people are like that. Well, think about all the ways we're doing that. Those sorts of things typically come out of the mouths of people who look like me, who are white, most often male, heterosexual, operating with enormous privilege in our society. And when you consider the source, it's more interesting, I think, to recognize this pattern because people like me do not want to give up that privileged position. Therefore, if we can if we can keep everyone else on a ladder of declining value, then we remain in some sense of control of society. Well, you know, that's just not a fundamentally spiritual and Christian thing to do or to defend. And we've just got to be honest about that and say, if Christianity is to have any merit for our time, we have to defend the full humanity and dignity of every single human being. So when you started down that path of having conversations with fellow senior leaders of the various religious organizations and communities where you participated, when did you first, as a husband, a father, a grandfather, go to your family and say, this is where my heart is at? And I think this is where I need to lead the church. There was a really interesting moment that happened around a dinner table at my house, probably eight or nine years ago, I guess, maybe not that long, but my, my mother was over for dinner that night. And it, it turns out that my kids were here too. And uh, for, for some reason, this subject came up and uh, my mother is a very devout uh, Christian who is very studied in the Bible and, and has a, a really wonderful heart. But like so many of her generation, uh, she wrestled with uh, how to fit these two things together. And she said that she had dropped off a, a CD of our choir doing a Christmas program to her uh, partnered gay neighbors. And my 20-something-year-old daughter said, well, Grandma, did you invite them to church? <laughs> and she said, yes, I have. Oh, oh, so you'd be willing for them to come to church? Yes. So, Grandma, are you on board here? Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and, she, and then she sort of backed up. Well, they could come, but, but and there's always, you know, the but. And the this but. is, Yeah. What what I like to say to people is, uh, when you say yes, but, the only thing that really matters is what comes after the but, not what comes before the but. You that know? is that is so true. Yeah. Anyway, so this this issued into quite a dinner table conversation in which I had found myself 
joining my kids in defending their gay friends and using the Bible to do it. <laughs> and I had not really even made the decision yet about my own position, but I was listening to myself join my kids uh, in trying to say to my mother, uh, this is not just a secular culture fighting against the church. This is actually the church's work. You know, I think my mother made a lot of progress that night too, but we had really quite a conversation. And, you know, she's still in the church and enthusiastic about our church. Uh, and, and so I'm proud of her about that. She's uh, come a long way. We all have. But I, I think that was really the moment, Bob, for me with my family, is to realize that while I was still sort of undecided in principle, I found myself joining the argument in favor of full inclusion. And in hearing myself say it, I realized I could never go back. You know, I think it's important for everyone to understand that evolution is often a very good thing. People don't necessarily always start with accepting any position. I think we as human beings have to extend our hand and allow them the opportunity to work through an acceptance of not just human beings, but policies or any other position that needs an education and an understanding. You mentioned you had spent time with other faith leaders in the religious community. There are clear members of the religious community in Dallas, some that you very well may be friends with, I would suspect, that are adamantly opposed to the inclusion of LGBTQ people. Do you feel that those religious influencers are on a path to acceptance of LGBTQ people or are there just going to be people that will never open their minds to the equality of other human beings based on various characteristics? I think that it's the latter, most of all, that we have to acknowledge. And that is that there are some people in our generation that will simply never open their minds to this. It's, it's something that we will have to accept and deal with. However, I have had far more encouragement in conversations with colleagues who have privately talked to me and said, I really admire what you have done. I wish I could do that in our church. Or uh, they've said, my mind is changing about this and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Or I really want to believe differently than I do now because I understand what's at stake for LGBTQ persons, but I'm stuck here in my theology. What should I read? Who should I talk to? Will you help? I'm hearing more and more of that happening out there, and I'm really encouraged as a result of it. And so, you know, one of the, the consequences, Bob, I think, the unintended consequences maybe of the decision we made at our church to be fully and totally inclusive with no limitations on gay people that are not on any other kind of person in the church is that we have, we have actually created an opportunity for people to see how that works, to, to see what kind of church we become because of that. Because, you know, so much of the fear that people have of making this change is that 
they won't really recognize their church anymore. It won't be the church that they have known. And they're both right and wrong about that in the sense that, well, yes, it won't be a place where people have to sort of walk around looking over their shoulder, worried about what people think of them because everyone can bring their whole selves to the church. And so it gives people encouragement that, oh, if, if Wilshire can be a thriving church where we could raise our kids in this healthy environment and they could learn the gospel story and they could understand the scriptures and be a people of generous spirit toward others. Well, that's maybe that's a church we could be too, not just Wilshire. You know, it's interesting that you and and the leaders of Wilshire Baptist made the conscious decision to move forward when there were religious institutions in Dallas and elsewhere throughout the country that were inclusive and had provided a place for LGBTQ people of faith to practice and participate in the religious community. So why would you lead your church down a very disruptive path Mm. when the argument would be there were already places for LGBTQ people to engage in the faith community? Well, yes and no. Look, we were not the first in Dallas to do this. We have numerous churches that gave encouragement to us because of reaching this decision before us or around the same time as us. And of of course, Cathedral of Hope being the beachhead for these movements and the, the dear friends that I have made there and the respect I have for their pastor, Neil Thomas, is really rich. So yes, that's true. But as as you know, Bob, look, all gay people are not of the same temperament about church life. Many gay people say things like, you know, I'm gay, but that's just one aspect of my life. It's not the whole whole of my life. And they've said things like, you know, but yeah, I'm a Baptist. And uh, where do I go if I'm a Baptist, right? And so some of that was also at play. And but but regardless of that, look, everyone has to just look into their own soul and say, look, this is who I am. This is where I am. What's the right thing to do here? And when we made this decision, that's what we were doing. We knew there were consequences on the negative side. We made the decision in November of 2016, right in the middle of the election of Donald Trump as president, when the whole country basically voted and said, we've gone too far with these things. Wilshire was voting on the Sunday before and the Sunday after the general election. And we voted instead to move forward. That's extraordinary, but it had consequences. We lost about 300 members uh, within uh, a year. And now three and a half years later, we've gained more than 350 new members. So, you know, it's encouraging. What, what were some of the other consequences? Because it wasn't just about membership. Clearly, <laughs> the church had taken a path forward, and yeah. all churches evolve around various policies and teachings, mm-hmm. and as a result, members come and go. So that is not anything that's abnormal. 
within the religious community. But this was abnormal. This was a mass exodus. This was this was not people having disagreements. This was whole Sunday school classes leaving together. Uh, this was these were statements being made. Specifically. These were statements being made, and they were um, very significant in that many of the people who left had been here for a very long time had sacrificed and served and given generously to the church. They felt betrayed by me and the leadership of the church that we did not preference their point of view. And some of them felt betrayed by the process that we went, that we used to go about making the decision. I have learned, Bob, that anytime you have a a, a decision like this, there is no such thing as the perfect process unless you are on the winning side of it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know hindsight's always twenty twenty. In fact, you were you were a, a quarterback. Yeah, uh, yeah. You played football. You were a quarterback. Mm-hmm. Right. You were the team leader. You know, we have that saying, uh, armchair quarterback. Mm-hmm. And now that you can look back on that, are there things you would have done differently? Yes. Facing this today, what would you say to them? Uh, I would say have a heart-to-heart conversation with your leadership in which you have a a clear statement to them about your own position before you enter into this. I explained why we were entering into this on the basis of the need for the church to clarify its position. And there were about five reasons why we had to clarify the position. One of them was that we had deacon nominees from the congregation uh, who were gay, and we had never ordained a gay deacon. And rather than just putting that forward for a vote and making a person say the issue, it felt right that we should make it about the whole idea rather than the person. So we felt like we needed to to do that. We had like five kids who grew up in the church who came out to me and they were legacy families in the church. And within the last two years before this time, they, they had come to me and said, can you help me with my parents? You know, what will be my place in the church now? What's your role in this? And for years and years, when gay people came to see me, they were sort of like, okay, look, I think I'm gay. I understand this is wrong, but I don't know what to do with it. What do you think? They're not doing that anymore. They're, they're like coming to me saying, look, I'm, I'm good with this. want to know how you are with it and the church. So we needed to wrestle with that somewhat. Uh, the Supreme Court decision come out earlier that summer. We had to decide as a church because ministers operate as agents of the state in performing weddings. Uh, now that they're legal, we would have to have made a deliberate decision not to marry someone on religious grounds, which we could have done because there's religious freedom uh, about that matter. But I didn't want to do that. And so I needed to know whether our church was going to stand by me in being willing to marry gay people. There were other factors like we, we did a church, uh, strategic plan and the top values that came out of that long strategic plan were diversity and inclusion, top two values, at which point some people were saying, 
well, does that include LGBTQ folk? And so I said, look, we were not specific about that. I think we need to ask our church that question. Are you saying that diversity and inclusion are high values for us, but we're still going to operate under a position that uh, gay people can't serve as deacons or ministers or be ordained or whatever the case may be? And so, yeah, so we had to answer all those questions. With any community that has been marginalized, there is always a transition of trust Mm-hmm. that needs to be built with that community. Right. Are there specific measures that Wilshire Baptist has taken to build that trust? Yes, I think it I think it is and to some degree it's a it's a tender matter, right? Because you just said on the one hand we need to show good faith to gay people coming to us that we mean what we have said and therefore we need to demonstrate that in some way. And so, you know, how do you help people who want to stay, but who are grieving? And how do you help people who want to come, but are wary? And so you've got both of these things going on at the same time. So I found myself, you know, just sort of wrestling for the first six months or more with what's my tone going to be? How, How do I... How do I reach out to both groups to say, we can do this, people, right? But eventually, I would say, you have to change the system's thinking. So you have to actually put gay people on the chancel leading in worship. You have to, you, you have to actually enlist them to serve on key committees. You have to ordain them as deacons. You have to show good faith like that. And you also need to hear from me in the pulpit, uh, celebrating these kinds of things from time to time, just so that there's like a, a, a reminder that we're not embarrassed about what we've done. We didn't just sort of do it and then push it under the rug. We're proud of what we have done. And uh, we, we're proud that we have sisters and brothers now, siblings in faith, who have come to us that would never have before and they feel free, and they can be themselves, and that's a joy. So uh, it, it's been a growing sense of, I think, confidence that we've had. But that first six months to a year was was pretty tender. There are faith leaders globally who are visceral in their hatred toward LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. Some of them are local. Some of them are global. Some of them even advocate violence and death toward LGBTQ people. When you are having conversations with fellow faith leaders and you are discussing inclusionary practices within the religious community with someone who is opposed to that inclusion policy, what is their biggest hurdle, do you think, that they just can't seem to put their arms around? They homoeroticize. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, they homoeroticize gay people. So, you know, it's it's like, I don't know why this is the case, but if you meet a a straight couple and you're straight, you don't immediately sort of think about what they're doing in the bedroom, right? Yeah, I wouldn't think anyone would do that. I know, but I'm saying I think people have a tendency with gay people historically 
to go straight to their sex life somehow rather than their relationship. We, we view sex among straight people as just sort of something that happens as a small part of their lives and as a consequence of their loving relationship. But with gay people, the tendency is to the mind just sort of goes straight to the sex and governs everything else. And I'm not sure why that is the case, but it is, uh, I think, a factor. You know, well, you know I, it's I, very interesting that you bring that up because there are certain clobber passages in the Bible right. that a lot of times these leaders, faith leaders who are opposed to inclusionary policies immediately go to. And in some of those passages in the Bible, they specifically talk about or refer to sexual activity. What is your response to, because some of the, you know, where I grew up in a small country towns, even people who don't go to church love to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, mm-hmm. I got to be honest with you, I never really learned anything about Sodom and Gomorrah in the small church where I grew up during my formative religious years. What's this Sodom and Gomorrah thing all about? Well, so Sodom and Gomorrah, and of course the word sodomy comes from this, the town of Sodom in, in the Bible, where the town was destroyed, the city of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it, these cities were on the plain of uh, in Judea, uh, down around the Dead Sea. So, you know, this notion of fire and brimstone coming was was probably sulfur. There are salt areas around there that uh, you can sort of see how this might have been. It's sort of a desolate type uh, area. But, you know, the story really is about the visitation of angels that had come into the town and they had come to Lot, a man named Lot, Abraham's nephew, to his his home. And the people of the town wanted to come and have sex with these strangers. We know that, you know, they they had this sort of interest because when Lot then says, I can't let that happen, he actually offers his daughters instead as if to, to, you know, as if that would be an honorable thing to do, you know, but the, the thing that's missed by most people and that is picked up in another part of the Bible actually is that the sin was itself not about uh, the desire for same sex relationships, but the sin was about the gross inhospitality of this town. Hospitality was a, uh, a value that's very difficult for us in modern Western times to understand. But without Holiday Inn in a town, you know, if somebody came into your town and stayed in your house, you were responsible for their welfare and protecting them. And this town would, was not doing that. And so it was, it was creating an unsafe place for visitors and strangers. Well, you know, that's interesting. Your your interpretation of that is very interesting because you could relate that directly to the hospitality of the church. Oh, yes. Is the church hospitable? Is the right. church not hospitable? Right. Another passage that's often thrown in the faces of LGBTQ people is Leviticus. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sure you've heard many a sermon preached around uh-huh. Leviticus 18 and 20. What's your interpretation of that? And is that relevant in the 
inclusionary policies of the church? One of the things we have to do is understand why certain things are in the Bible to begin with. And the book of Leviticus and this passage that you're talking about, that a man should not lie with another man as with a woman, is also in the same section of what's called the holiness code of Israel, which is trying to lay down cultic rules about how to govern the life of a people in worship. Well, you know, there are all sorts of things in those texts that we simply dismiss today as being no longer relevant to holiness or purity. Uh, For example, having sex during a, a woman's menstrual cycle was prohibited. The eating of shellfish, what was also prohibited was wearing blended fabrics. You could not have more than one kind of fabric in the same garment, or you were diluting the garment. So what's all of this about? It's it's about how to maintain a sense of purity before God. And when we look at that today, the t-shirt I'm wearing right now talking with you is a blended fabric. Well, I'm breaking Leviticus right there. And we don't think anything of it. We actually think, well, that's pretty smart the way they made that, you know. And you know, I had shrimp for lunch the other day. Well, you know, it doesn't indicate a, a failure of holiness for me to do that. And why is it that we are so eager to enforce one thing and so ready to dismiss others? And so I think we just need to ask, what is the continuing relevance of that to us? And I don't see it as being con- having continuing relevance. Talk a little bit about the importance of faith for all people. And then if there's anything that I didn't touch on that you feel you would like to share, I want to open the floor to you. Thanks, Bob. Many conservative Christians want to say that faith is in, in Christ is important for everyone in the world, that their witness to people is important and their invitation for people to put their faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ is important. They would not, in theory, want to put anything as a stipulation in front of that. And yet, when you prohibit gay people from being fully themselves in the church by defining how they love and whom they love, as being uh, disqualifying, then you've really put something ahead of the good news, ahead of their sense of per- personhood. You, you, you've really defined them in a way that you wouldn't want to define yourself. So I, I like to say that being a Christian is the noun. Everything else is an adjective. And when you make the adjective the noun, then that's the big problem. See, Bob, you're you're not gay, Bob. You're you're Bob, <laughs> and you're Christian, not gay Christian. You know which comes first? You're a Christian who happens to be gay. I'm a Christian who happens to be straight, but those are definitions of who we are that are secondary to our chief identity as children of. God. And we have to put first things first. 
And then after that, we learn to understand one another, celebrate one another, wrestle with one another over this idea or that. But we try to be faithful to our chief identity. What does it mean to be a child of God and a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about what I consider to be a very relevant subject, specifically during LGBTQ Pride Month. Can we take a moment to celebrate the Supreme Court decision this week? We can. We can. Yes. We can. I mean, you know, we all talked about that. What was your reaction to the decision? Is it something that you feel will be supported by the faith community? First of all, I celebrate the decision, and I'm th- I'm thrilled that that LGBTQ folk can go to work in most places now in this country and feel secure that their job is protected. Now there are exceptions still, and certainly religion is one of them. So what we know is that. Now, religious employ- employers of, at companies who have religious objection can't just claim that religious objection and fire somebody for this. But they can if they work for a church or a religious institution or something like that. They still have the right to discriminate uh, on a religious basis. And I think that's unfortunate because religious liberty is being interpreted by folks as being a right to discriminate. And instead of a, a right to participate in someone else's liberation. <laughs> right. And, and so right. I, I find that really unfortunate. But Bob, every time, every time a step like this is taken, it advances the ball and it, it makes it less plausible in the future that people are going to be able to uh, discriminate with impunity. It's going to make people, even in religious nonprofits and in churches, it's going to make them think twice before they do that. And I think that this is a good thing, and eventually the curve continues to turn. Well, I also think it's a good thing, and I appreciate your time today, and I appreciate you being with me on Breaking Protocols. Clearly someone who has a little bit of experience with that. So, uh, Pastor George Mason and Wilshire Baptist, thank you for your inclusive policies toward LGBTQ people, and thank you for celebrating June Pride with the community. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks, my friend. Same with you. Have a good day. You too. And thank you for listening to Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadawake. Please click and subscribe to receive notification of my future podcast. And if you've not had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, It is available at your favorite online retailer and can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Thank you for listening and many blessings.